Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Some more unfortunate news for the economy. Inflation ticks up again to a new four-decade high of 8.5%. This is now the sixth straight month of inflation over 6%. The current rate of inflation continues to be driven by high energy costs and more rises in grocery prices. Some economists hope that we are hitting a peak as prices in some other sectors do begin to ease. One spot where prices have come down just a bit is in housing. Auto prices also, which have powered much of the inflationary surge, eased a little bit in March. The next meeting for Fed officials is early May, and they've already indicated they could support raising rates by a half percentage point instead of the usual quarter point. For more on all this, we'll speak to Gwyn Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. This month is, or in March, was energy prices were through the roof again, and some of that had to do with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and that pushed up oil prices a bunch, and then that fed through to gasoline prices. But gasoline prices were already really high, so it's basically like this huge inflationary pressure that economists expected to start easing by now because, gosh, it kind of had to. No, not going to ease. Food prices are up a ton, and 
grocery prices are up, you know, they increased 1.5% over the course of March. And that is just, that is really hitting people's budgets hard. But, you know, you have basically all the stories that we've talked about as we've been like, why is inflation going crazy right now? Throughout the last year or so, you know, you have supply chains. Those continue to be messed up in China's COVID lockdown. That's not helping things at all. You know, ports are shut down, production's pulled back. And, you know, you have household furnishings going up a bunch. And then you have like what always happens when we come out of a COVID wave where, you know, airfare and hotels go up a bunch. Airline tickets went up 10.7% in March from February. That, that's a lot. Yeah. And so you just have, and then you just have the strong demand in the economy pushing up on everything else. And so it's sort of like all of these forces broke on, on the economy in March. And then we get 8.5%. <laughs> right. Huge. Yeah. When, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, the invasion of Ukraine and China, at least on the Ukraine front, it looks like things could be getting worse as, you know, they're major wheat producers. So that's kind of a longer term thing that we still have yet to see really hit us. Uh, in China, maybe that could be getting better. I saw a story about how they're easing some of the lockdown restrictions, probably not enough to get back to full manufacturing schedules, but hopefully that can ease a little bit. Economists are saying that, you know, they're trying to look for any evidence that we might be hitting a peak. What do we know about that? Yeah, we probably did hit the peak. We're probably at the peak in March. And well, that's for a bunch of reasons. You know, energy prices do seem like they might have been topping out in March. They've come down a little bit. Gasoline prices have come down a little bit. And the COVID situation in China seems like it might be getting a little bit better. And, uh, you know, there are used car prices. That's the one story that yeah. actually I said, you know, all of these forces broke on the economy. This Well, the one exception is that, you know, this whole time, with the exception of February, like used car prices have been really driving so much of inflation because there's just like there aren't enough cars for people to buy. And so used car prices declined in March. They fell 3.8% in March from February. And so that like took a, a lot of pressure off, you know, that headline number. And will that continue? Yeah, probably in bits and pieces, like from month to month, it'll start coming down a bit. And that's going to really take some of the heat off inflation because that's been a huge factor for the last year. You mentioned the rising prices of groceries and the you know the food inflation part of it. One of the economists you spoke to said that you know the burden of these price rises could be triggering a consumer pullback. What does that mean exactly? People are just going to start buying less because they can't afford it, and how does that impact what's going on with inflation? Yeah, that's uh, people spend less or they shift into they buy other things, they buy cheaper things. Like one of the guys I talked to for the story. He's got five kids and he's been trying to come up with these ways because five kids really expensive, right, of sort of like trimming those costs a little bit. So he was trying to um, he bought some cheap, generic Lucky Charms, basically marshmallow cereal and put them in a Lucky Charms box and tried to pass it off as Lucky Charms. His kids were like, no, 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 that's not that you're not fooling us. These aren't the right. You got to get the Lucky Charms. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. So things like that, where, but you know, that's like a marginal thing, but, you know, he's thinking about, you know, maybe, maybe the kids don't have summer camp this summer. So those are the ways that you start to see people pull back. That doesn't mean necessarily that the raw volume, the raw amount of spending comes down because prices are still going up, but people are experiencing their spending differently because they're like getting less, they're getting crummy Lucky Charms or whatever, <laughs> off-brand Lucky Charms and not going to camp. So that hits sentiment. Right. And then those things already, American consumers are pretty unhappy right now. 
What about wages? Because we're seeing some wages rise. Employers are setting aside money to give their employees raises and all, but it's just going too slow to offset what is happening with inflation. Yeah, that you're hitting on the crux of sort of what's going to happen. So if people's wages aren't keeping up with inflation, so their living standard is eroding a little bit, and either they are dissatisfied with that and pull back on their spending and, you know, the economy slows down or they accept higher prices, but they go to their bosses and say, okay, I'm going to need more money, a lot more money to keep up with inflation. And their bosses are like, oh, okay, let me give you that raise and I'm going to go ahead and raise my prices. And then you start to have inflation become baked into the economy at a certain level. And that's going to make it really hard to bring it down. And that is what could become more deeply problematic right. for the economy going forward than maybe like slowing down from this pretty hot period of consumer spending. Well, again, a new four-decade high of 8.5%. We'll see if it rises, if it drops. Uh, we're hoping, obviously, for everything to start normalizing out. Gwyn Guilford, economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The next big treatment for addiction may have presented itself. Several psychedelic drugs have been touted as effective treatments for alcohol and drug abuse. But psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, seem to be the most effective when combined with therapy. While we only have some limited early studies, psilocybin has been shown to be effective in alcohol and harder drugs, but also nicotine, all of these which resist long-term treatment. Psilocybin still remains illegal under federal law, but there are some clinical trials running to study the drug and see how it can address the psychological needs of addiction. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Brendan Burrell, contributor to the New York Times. The psychedelic drugs had sort of been studied back in like the 1950s and 60s, kind of the heyday of the LSD era. And with sort of the passage of the Controlled Substances Act, all that stuff was made illegal. The highest sort of category of, of illegal drugs, basically, Schedule One, And so research came to halt. But, some, you know, o over the last 20 years, there have been sort of some looking in the archives and noticing some of these promising early studies uh, showing that LSD could help people quit alcohol, maybe. And so now we're seeing this this incredible resurgence. And a lot of it has focused on ketamine, which is this anesthetic drug, special K and so on, that creates some some psychedelic effects. And that's that's showing promise in sort of ending alcohol abuse. But psilocybin is the next horizon and it has an even more profound psychedelic trip. And people, scientists feel like this is critical to having allowing people to change their lives. And, you know, there's uh, uh, clinical trials going on with psilocybin to the point of how things have progressed, right? The John Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. I mean, uh, you know, these are uh, whole departments now set up looking to this. And, you know, it's helping people, right? There was a, a small example that you had in the article about a woman who uh, had a smoking habit. She wanted to kick that. She got involved in one of these clinical trials and she took the psilocybin in accompaniment with a uh, therapy session and she was able to kick her smoking habit. So these are the kinds of things that they're seeing with these types of treatments now. Yeah, she had a really profound experience. I mean, she's a an investor lives part-time in Boston who you just never expect is going to be taking up hallucinogenic mushrooms, right? <laughs> and um, so she goes into this clinic, lays down, and sort of she described to me her trip is like, 
climbing up this series of interconnected ladders, looking out to these pools that sort of for her were these psychological problems that she was facing. And it was like she comes back from the trip. It lasts about five hours. And she's like, tells the two therapists in the room, like, I understand why I smoked and I, I don't need to do that anymore. And yeah, I mean, so far, the, the early results, I mean, I think we have to be cautious here because these trials have still been sort of small trials. And we're seeing sort of 80% success rate in about 15 smokers was that that trial that Amy participated in. And that's, I mean, compared to current sort of best outcomes is about 30%. So these these things are very exciting, but we don't know that they work for everybody. And even if they're just a little bit effective, it can have a huge public health. Recently on the podcast, we even did a story about how some of these drugs are being adopted by like wellness culture, right? The whole micro dosing things. And obviously what we're talking about right now, we're done in clinical settings. Uh, Johns Hopkins, right? They just received a four million grant from the National Institutes of Health to keep on studying these things. But even in in people's everyday lives, they're approaching psilocybin as something that, that can help them out with. So they're looking at this for more the more than just chemical dependency too. When you know when we're talking about drugs and alcohol and, and cigarettes and and the nicotine in them, they're even looking for it to help with other psychological needs. I think the point there is when we think about people have an addiction to cocaine or alcohol, and you try to quit that. You're using it every day. Your body goes through just this physical withdrawal. You get the shakes and your heart rate is, is high. You feel anxiety and all of that. That tends to go away within a few weeks after quitting a drug or alcohol, right? But why is it that people then go back and take that drug again? The physical symptoms are gone. And that is where you need something to sort of flip a psychological switch. And what these researchers believe is that psilocybin or other psychedelic drugs give people this kind of profound spiritual experience in some sense. And that helps the therapy they're going through sort of stick and give them sort of the mental flexibility that they can reconfigure their life and move away from their addiction. And so what are next steps with all of this? Uh, you know, some are saying that they worry that they're not studying, evaluating psilocybin in poorer communities where, you know, people might have greater addictions uh, and, uh, you know, just the, the number of them. So people are saying maybe we should move clinical trials there or, or, or uh, at least leave it open to people like that. Um, so these are might be some next steps that in, in the study of all this. Yeah, I think the point is that that the author Michael Pollan's written a very well-received book about the, you know, the future of psychedelics and how they change your mind and so on. So there's like lots of white people out there who are very well read and are like, sign me up. I want to do this. <laughs> right. um, but the impact of addictions is actually is, as you point out, most profound in, in, in poor communities and communities of color. And some of these people are not as sort of well-versed in these potential benefits and so if we really want to evaluate how well these things work, yes, we should be testing them in places in like Berkeley, but we should also be testing them in Birmingham, Alabama to really get a, a full picture of how well they work and to help the people most at, at yeah. need. It'll be interesting to keep following this, you know, attitudes around a lot of different types of drugs have been changing very much recently. So we'll see what continues with this. Brendan Burrell, contributor to The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. This week, we also heard a little bit more about another massive cargo ship that has stranded, this time in Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. 
It's been there for a month now. The circumstances aren't as disruptive as the last time a cargo ship was stuck in the Suez Canal, but it's becoming somewhat of a destination for gawkers and those bored enough wanting to see a stranded ship. For more on all this, we'll speak to Julie Bikowitz, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So the first thing to know about this stock ship is it has the best possible name for a ship that has been stuck since March 13th. It's the Ever Forward, and it's just not moving forward at all. It's uh, about (laughs) two miles offshore in the Chesapeake Bay, which sounds like a really far distance, but when you're on shore and there's a giant container ship, it looks surprisingly close. So people have been coming to check it out. It's uh, very visible from this park in Pasadena, Maryland, which is kind of roughly speaking between Baltimore and Annapolis. The park is called Downs Park. You just fork over your $6 as the fee to get into the county park and you drive into the parking lot and you immediately notice that there's a giant container ship offshore. So the complication here for people who want to go check out the ship is it is cool. You get there and wow, there's a huge ship out there, but there's just absolutely nothing really going on. Um, (laughs) So you you drive this long distance, you get to the park, you you check out the ship and then that's kind of it. You know, but some of the people that you spoke to just, it doesn't matter. They say it's pretty fascinating just to see something so huge there. And and it's funny because you do, uh, you know, people are posing for pictures and you kind of see it way in the background. It's like above their head floating almost. But yeah, it's just stuck out there. There's been two attempts so far to get this thing out of there. And both of those have failed. They're starting a new attempt. It's going to be slightly different this time. But tell us about those efforts, at least. First of all, let's just back up and explain what we know about how the ship got stuck. It was leaving the port of Baltimore um, March 13th and going through a 50 foot deep shipping channel, very commonly used, thousands of ships each year come in and out, heading down to Norfolk, Virginia, and something happened. Maybe it was pilot error, mechanical issue. We don't exactly know yet. That's all under investigation. But somehow this giant ship veered wildly off course and ended up running aground in about 24 feet of water, just really not deep enough at all for a ship. And its draft is 42 feet. So it's really, really stuck in the bottom of the bay. And they've tried a couple different methods to get it out involving tugboats, just kind of yanking on it. They've been dredging the silt underneath the ship. And now what they're doing is since they feel like, and this is the Coast Guard-led effort, by the way, since they feel like they've gotten enough silt out from underneath the ship, they are trying to lighten the load enough to get it floating again. And so right now there are a couple of huge cranes slowly and carefully removing containers from the ship. They think they need to remove about 500 or so containers on a ship that's holding about 4,900 containers. And then uh, hopefully in a week or so, they'll be able to bring in some bigger tugboats. These are actually barges with winch systems to get the thing moving again. Wow. I mean, that's pretty uh, amazing right there. And yeah, they have to set everything up. I guess the timeline, they say maybe another week, another two weeks, possibly to get everything set up, to get those containers removed, to lighten the load. So they're still in for a little bit more time with this, you know, and in the meantime, you know, you mentioned the park. It's funny <laughs> listening from, to some of the people that work there. They're like, wow, it's great. We're getting more people coming to the park and, and, and all that. But to your point that you mentioned earlier, they're like, yeah, you know, I mean, there's not much beyond just the ship sitting there. <laughs> so they're kind of yeah. even uh, ambivalent about it themselves. 
Yeah, it just sort of, you know, it's cool, but then it's sort of what's next, you know. Um, but I think now that they are actually removing some of these containers, there's a tiny bit more action than when I was out there when absolutely nothing was happening. So there's something a little interesting. And I'm personally going to try to keep track of when they move these big barges in to actually try to refloat the ship, because that part sounds pretty cool. It sounds like, you yeah, know, that um, might be interesting to see it get moving again. Now, when this happened earlier last year, you know, there was a lot a lot more at stake, right? It was blocking the pathway for other ships to go through. That's not necessarily the case here. I mean, there's, uh, as you mentioned, 4,900 containers on that ship. So all that stuff is being delayed. I think, uh, I guess it was mostly different home go- household goods that are on there. But when something like this happens, people also ask, you know, are there any environmental risks? As of what we hear now, they say no. Yeah, so there's a lot of good news. I mean, in terms of ships running aground, this is a decent situation in that no one was hurt. There's no pollution risk, as far as anyone knows, from the ship. And the containers themselves have mostly dry goods, household items that would go to big box stores and so forth. So it's not a terribly dangerous situation. And also, as you mentioned, and this is really key since we're having so many supply chain issues unrelated to this type of thing, there's no blocking of other ship traffic because, again, it went so far outside the channel that it's not actually impeding anything. So ships are able to very easily get around it. And that hasn't disrupted the supply chain at all this time. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, it should be pretty, uh, a pretty amazing video when they do finally get it removed. As far as the crew, I guess the captain said they're free to leave, but they haven't so far, so they'll stick there a little bit longer. Julie Bikowitz, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks again. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.